0: This is Guns and Butter.
1: There's something happening yeah. yeah, yeah. What it is ain't exactly clear. There's a man with a gun
2: over there. There's the whole process of manipulation where money is made and debts are created through derivative trade, through these very highly leveraged uh, operations. And um, we now estimate the, the debt, the derivative debt, to be in the trillions. And uh, ultimately, the people who hold that, that debt have tremendous uh, power, authority over virtually everybody else. Because they, as creditors, they call the shots. And they overshadow governments, as in the case of Greece or they can overshadow also companies or even financial institutions.
0: I'm Bonnie Faulkner. Today on Guns and Butter, Michel Chosorovsky. Today's show, The Global Economic Crisis, The Great Depression of the 21st Century. Michel Chosorovsky is a professor of economics and director of the Centre for Research on Globalization, based in Montreal, Quebec. He is the author of The Globalization of Poverty and the New World Order, War and Globalization, The Truth Behind September 11th, and America's War on Terrorism, as well as numerous articles. He is co-editor and contributor to a new anthology, The Global Economic Crisis, The Great Depression of the 21st Century. Many economists and investigative journalists have contributed to this new volume, including Michelle Chosarovsky, Tanya Karina Sue, John Bellamy Foster, Fred Magdoff, James Petras, Claudia von Werlhoff, Seamus Cook, Peter Phillips, Peter Dale Scott, Michael Hudson, Bill Van Auken, Tom Burkhart, Andrew Gavin Marshall, Ellen Brown, Richard C. Cook, and Mike Whitney. Michel Chosadovsky, welcome.
2: I'm delighted to be on the program.
0: You have a brand new book coming out, an anthology, actually, that you've edited and contributed to, The Global Economic Crisis, The Great Depression of the 21st Century. What can you tell me about this book?
2: Well, first of all, this book is uh, an initiative of, um, of Andrew Gavin Marshall and myself, um, we put together a number of, of uh, pointed essays, uh, uh, including our own writings on the subject matter, uh, with a view to covering things which are not normally discussed—certainly not discussed in the media—and not normally even discussed by economists. And uh, we we tried to broaden the the discussion of economic phenomena by um, inserting. Into the debate, military aspects, the, the role of, of the war, uh, the relationship between the war and the economic crisis. In fact, our thrust was to in fact show that we're not dealing with separate uh, uh, phenomena. the war and the economic crisis are intimately related, and in fact we're dealing with a global economic, social, political crisis, which is far-reaching. Um, we, we also looked at, um, at the national security implications, uh, areas which are not normally discussed, the black budgets of the Pentagon, and the whole area of shadow banking was, was also um, the object of, of analysis, uh, the role of the Bank for International Settlements, the very secretive arrangements which exist within the banking system. We looked at uh, issues, historical issues, how, how this whole system um, actually unfolded. Uh, and we also looked at uh, the issue of the shadow banking system, the various uh, instruments of speculation and, and so on which uh, ultimately lead to this appropriation of of wealth from from households. We we looked at um, the role that banks, that these global banks, play in the political arena and how the world is, in fact, moving gradually towards a world government. This is not a world government of the people. It's the world government of the banks it's the banks and the and the oil companies and the defense contractors which run the world and uh so that was also uh, an area of uh, of concern um the end result of this very complex system it's a capitalist system but we don't want to necessarily describe it superficially using, you know, the normal rhetoric to describe a capitalist system because we realize that the system is far more complex. Uh, when we bring in the, we bring in the shadow banking, and then we bring in the the military and the CIA and the CIA operating in the stock markets and, and the role of inside information and and the role that the media plays in in. Uh, in interpreting and analyzing the economy and, and presenting a certain movement of the economy, which is obviously uh, false, like saying the recovery will come, uh, you know, in the second quarter of next year, this kind of, this kind of interpretation, well, we come up with the conclusion that we're dealing with something which is extremely complex, which requires um, a much broader understanding um, but ultimately, we also realize that that this crisis is leading to the impoverishment of the people of this planet in a very real way. It's, it's the, the globalization of poverty. It's the destruction of people's lives. It's the, it's the disengagement of resources. It's the destruction of creativity. Uh, it's, a, it's a diabolical process which is essentially predicated on the enrichment of a, of a very small minority. But that minority is also, uh, is also exercising political power from behind the scenes. Uh, and uh, that brings us also to looking at the role of, of um, entities such as the Council on Foreign Relations, the Bilderbergs, uh, the Trilateral Commission, the,
0: the,
2: the meetings behind closed doors in the Federal Reserve and on Wall Street, the, the various the think tanks, the role that the think tanks play, and so on. So we're, we're, dealing, with a, we're dealing with something much, much more complex.
0: Um,
2: we believe that this book will, will serve to more or less to unveil And reveal all these these falsehoods which have been fed to us, uh, particularly when the media tells us that uh, the crisis is over, or that the crisis is limited to Greece, or that uh, recovery is around the corner, and so on and so forth. We feel, of course, that this understanding is absolutely essential if we want to reverse the tide, um, the, the authors come from very different perspectives. Uh, they they come up with broadly the same conclusions, but they they focus their their ideas from different angles. I think that um, ultimately people have to formulate responses on how they can fight this system. What kind of mass movements uh, must emerge to? To democratize the financial system to to uh, close down the military industrial complex uh, well essentially to democratize the banking system. Some of these issues are, um, uh, are mentioned in the individual chapters, uh, but at the same time, I think we, we tend to be completely overwhelmed by the, by the complexity of what, what is occurring and, and, and unable simply to, to come up with um, a, a debate on, on how, what, what would be the next step. In other words, acting cohesively against the system uh, with a view to to uh, implementing um, democratic values, uh, social equity uh, as far as income is concerned, uh, creating jobs, and so on. I think we know how to do it, but, but the, the institutional fabric of capitalism is such uh, that it ultimately requires very major changes in the entire capitalist um, economy to be, to be realized.
0: Well, you do come up with ideas on how the debt overhang uh, could be dealt with in a, in a productive fashion, don't you? I mean, there are ideas uh, in your book about how to deal with this massive crisis that's happening.
2: Well, there's certainly there's certain things that that could be done immediately, um, and which governments could do uh, if they if they had the, the autonomy and independence. To implement these policies, i 'm um, thinking specifically the freeze of derivative trade of all types of speculative activities and and uh, financial manipulation could be wouldn 't be wiped out altogether, but certain instruments would be frozen, and this would lead to far lesser levels of instability on financial markets that in other words, this, uh, to freeze all forms of uh, derivative trade. And, and speculative activity is something which can be done, but the problem is that the speculators control the political apparatus i 'm talking about the large financial institutions, so that, and we can see that with the financial reform program, which is currently in the u s Congress right now. That reform program serves the interests of the banks. It is not there to regulate the banks it 's not there to, to, to moderate uh, in any way their activities. Uh, it's there to serve them. And and so uh, we, can, uh, we can always uh, put forth ideas on, on things which which have to be done. But the question is, what type of power configuration within society do we need to have so that they can be implemented? It's no use in simply saying, I have a new paradigm. Uh, paradigms don't change the world. What changes the world is, is a shift in power relations. And the banks are calling the shots, and they're calling the shots as far as policy is concerned. And they control and they own politicians, okay? Obama is not, doesn't, doesn't decide on anything. He takes orders from other people higher up who operate behind the scenes. And that is how the system works. And so to, to put forth a shopping list of things that have to be done and uh, do this, do that uh, is, is useless unless, we have the means uh, within our society we have the means to confront these powerful elites, which ultimately now control institutions, control governments and and which are in a position to uh, to uh, influence decision making to their advantage, but also in a way which is destructive, which is economically destructive, but which could lead the world into into, uh, into a Third World War. And that's certainly true with regard to the wars that, that are now being waged in the Middle East and Central Asia. These are wars of conquest. They're serving the interests of the oil companies and of the military-industrial complex, the defense contractors, and they could certainly lead us into a World War Three scenario. And that World War III scenario is very much related to the economic crisis, and the fact that that economic crisis cannot be resolved within the framework, within the existing framework. uh, This is very important. Every single measure or solution which is proposed, which is being proposed since, let's say, since the meltdown of 2008, is in fact exacerbating rather than resolving the underlying situation. So what I'm saying is that the solution to the crisis is the cause of the crisis, okay? And every single measure that comes out of the of the U.S. administration or the European Commission is in fact precisely in that direction. So they say, uh, how do we... Uh, resolve the issue of the budget deficit, well, we have to cut expenditures on health and education and and increase taxes. Well, what does that do? That impoverishes people, which in turn then leads to exacerbating the crisis because more people are laid off and so on and so forth. Every single micro-level solution is one of um, downsizing, laying off workers. At no point is there a program which could in any way resemble the New Deal of saying we are going to create jobs by uh, improving people's lives, giving them more money to spend, uh, uh, having higher wages, um, having better social services, all of which would mobilize resources and which would lead to, uh, to improving people's lives. That is simply not part of the solutions which are being proposed. All the solutions are causes of further collapse, and that is uh, something so important, because each time we get into a situation where a solution has to be formulated, i.e., the budget deficit, we then realize that that solution is simply going to make matters much, much worse, and ultimately the solution to the budget deficit is the cause of further collapse of the fiscal system.
0: I'm speaking with economist and author Michelle Chosadovsky. Today's show, The Global Economic Crisis, The Great Depression of the 21st Century. I'm Bonnie Faulkner. This is Guns and Butter. Do you have an opinion as to what is driving all of this? Is it just simply greed? It has to be more complicated than that.
2: Yeah, that, that is a very good question. I, I think it's... Uh... The exercise of of economic uh, power within society um, it's um, it's perhaps an overriding instinct of uh, of these capitalist actors that they have to be powerful and wealthy. Uh, their wealth is so tremendous that they they couldn't even in their lifetime consume one very small percentage of what they. They actually earn. Uh, I mean, they have earnings in the trillions, and and uh, they lead luxurious lifestyles, and so on. Uh, the luxury goods economy is is uh, is a very dynamic sector, serving a very small segment of the population. But uh, it it boggles the mind uh, that um, this, that this diabolical economic, military, national security project is being. Is being developed. It's it's a means of controlling the lives of millions of people. Essentially, that's really what it is. It's a it's the powers of authority. It's it's a totalitarian system. Um, but at the same time, that that uh, the two other important considerations is that within the orbit of of these elites, there are uh, clashes and conflicts. Uh, very clearly, uh, we could see that when General Motors collapsed. General Motors is no a small entity. And if General Motors collapsed, it's because somebody within the corporate establishment made it collapse and picked up the pieces, so that the conflicts are, also, the conflicts are between the large majority of the population who are victims of this, of this economic crisis and who are victims of the wars led by the corporate establishment. But then there's an internal war within this corporate establishment, um, and it, it, it's, it's something which has been ongoing with the mergers and acquisitions. It's a regulated warfare. I mean, it, it's still, they, they behave in a very civil way to one another, but they're at each other's throats and um uh, And as this process proceeds, economic power becomes increasingly concentrated in a smaller and smaller number of hands. We can see that in in banking we can see it in the in uh, among the biotech conglomerates and the large pharmaceutical companies. We can see it also in oh uh, when we see a handful of companies owning the seed like Monsanto. Or Arch Daniel Midlands, Uh, you know, these are very powerful. They're powerful companies which which uh, control the lives of millions of people because by controlling genetically modified seeds, they control the life of farmers, and and it's a life and death situation, particularly in developing countries. So this is the background that we're dealing with, and um, as we discussed earlier. There are no simple, straightforward solutions, there's no shopping list of things that we might do or not do, uh, which can be presented in the abstract. I think it's important to make those shopping lists to say, these are the things we want, you know, these are the things that we want to achieve. Uh, Free education, free health, uh, you know, we want to protect the environment. It's important that we list those things, And, and people have been doing that for generations but we cannot implement any of those objectives unless we understand how this system actually functions. That is what is crucial.
0: Well, yes, and you write that rather than addressing an impending social catastrophe, Western governments, which serve the interests of the economic elites, have installed a Big Brother police state with a mandate to confront and repress all forms of opposition and social dissent.
2: Well, that is correct. I mean... The Homeland Security state is also intimately related to the economic crisis. And um, it's interesting that um, if you read some of the documents of um, the Department of Homeland Security pertaining, let's say, to terrorism, or because that's its main mandate is the global war on terrorism at, at the domestic level, but they also uh, introduce um, – other concepts such as "quote disgruntled employees," um, which presumes that disgruntled employees—people who have lost their jobs, who who don't have wages—they also deal with uh, radicals. Uh, there are various etiquettes which apply to certain categories of people which might be considered to be enemies of the state. So that this homeland security apparatus has nothing to do with combating bin Laden. In his cave in Afghanistan, it has a lot to do with policing uh, social dissent in America. Again, under the Big Brother type of of, uh, mentality that uh, this policing is there to protect people and so on and so forth. And I think that all this is implemented um, under the banner of making people feel insecure, okay? You make them feel insecure, what do they do? They accept uh, official interpretations. They don't question authority. Uh, They swallow the, the media lies. And uh, they are soft citizens uh, in an environment which is becoming increasingly repressive. So that is perhaps what 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 homeland security really is 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 to shunt people's um, ability to think, uh, to to analyze um, their predicaments and to impoverish them to such an extent that they, can't even, that they can't even think. People who are impoverished are not in a position to, to become militants. They, they, they're too much concerned with their survival. So uh, that's another aspect.
0: What were the driving forces behind the September 2008 stock market meltdown?
2: I think broadly that meltdown was the consequence of a built-in process of financial manipulation. Um, It um, was triggered by speculative trade, uh, mounting debts of certain uh, traded uh, companies. But I, I think we can't necessarily look at... The 2008 meltdown in isolation, because it's the consequence of a, of a historical process, uh, which goes back essentially to the late 90s, when uh, uh, the Clinton administration, in fact, in the last year of the Clinton administration, the Financial Services Modernization Act was implemented. And, uh, and it, it, ironically, Lawrence Summers, at the time, was Secretary of the Treasury, and he, of course, is now uh, a major voice uh, in the articulation of economic policy as the advisor to the president. But this uh, Financial Services Modernization Act repealed uh, some key pieces of legislation of the 1930s, which is called the Glass-Steagall Act. And uh, essentially, what it does is that it really opens the door to the institutional speculator. It allows for the merger of um, stock brokerage firms with commercial banks, with insurance companies, with accounting firms. It really deregulates the financial system. It, it allows the hedge funds really to become prominent players. And uh, by deregulating in this way, It then allows for the emergence of this so-called shadow banking um, network, which in effect is integrated into the big banks. Uh, It's not to say that the hedge funds lead a life of their own. They they are appendages of the financial system. It's really that structure, that architecture, which then led into the 2008-2009 financial crash. But I don't see that crisis really starting in 2008. It's really a a crisis which has a whole history, going back to the early 80s. If we think of the Reagan-Thatcher era, these neoconservative or neoliberal policies which were implemented at the time. uh, If we think of the debt crisis in developing countries um, starting in in the early 80s as well, the application of strong economic medicine by the the IMF and the World Bank. All those factors, I think, are are crucial in understanding the historical evolution of uh, what has become a global financial architecture. And uh, as I mentioned, the Financial Services Modernization Act creates this global banking supermarket, or global financial supermarket, where um, uh, you know where all different uh, financial activities are are merged and 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 you see also the merger boom of the 1990s where stock brokerage firms and and commercial banks integrate together, forming these giant conglomerates so we we have J. P. Morgan Chase, which is a merger and so This is, in fact, um, the background, a massive concentration of banking power in the hands of a limited number of of financial institutions with the ability to extend globally, to impose their conditions globally. And I should also mention that Wall Street uh, ultimately requires um, U.S. foreign policy to exert pressures on its behalf to open up uh, banking markets in, in uh, developing countries, uh, and so on. And so this, um, this crisis is really, it's really the pinnacle, it's, it's the, the climax of, of a whole series of changes in the banking architecture. Uh, it certainly hasn't reached um, its climax. We're still in a crisis. The, the crisis is deepening, and um, uh, what we are now seeing is the collapse of the real economy in America and around the world, uh, because that's ultimately what this kind of financial manipulation ultimately does. It triggers bankruptcies, it leads to uh, corporate layoffs, downsizing, restructuring, Uh, the destruction of small and medium-sized enterprises, uh, the derogation of workers' rights, um, the deregulation of the labor market, and so on. And to top it off, we have, um, I think, the most serious fiscal crisis in American history under the Obama administration, where uh, the bailout the money which was used, it's revenues from taxpayers, which was used to, to bail out the banks. This means that defense plus the bailout eat up almost the totality of federal revenues.
0: I'm speaking with economist and author Michel Chosodovsky. Today's show, The Global Economic Crisis, The Great Depression of the 21st Century. I'm Bonnie Faulkner. This is Guns and Butter. Uh, you've written that what is at stake is the outright criminalization of the financial system, financial theft, on an unprecedented scale. Can you explain that? Well,
2: I, I think it is uh, the criminalization of the financial system, because um, essentially, It uh, uses the institutions of banking, of government, to appropriate wealth and then transfer that wealth into the hands of a social minority, of a handful of financial institutions. Um, It also uses all the instruments of inside information, inside trading, uh, knowledge of 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 what 's going to happen um, there there are other features of of the system which uh may appear in fact even much worse than what i 've described the The fact that this financial system is is characterized by money laundering uh, it 's very much integrated into organized crime uh as as we normally understand it. Um, it's not um, by accident, uh, certainly, that that the drug trade is so important for the financial system because it represents a cash flow of, of of something of the order of 500 billion dollars a year. Eh? and then when you you looked at the war in Afghanistan and realized that the war in Afghanistan has a direct relationship to the the trade in in, in heroin. Uh, because heroin is produced in Afghanistan. More than 90 percent of heroin comes from Afghanistan, and that trade in itself is in excess of $200 billion a year. It all goes then into the banking system. Then you have, of course, the offshore banking havens in uh, secret accounts, uh, the laundering of uh, drug monies, once the money is laundered it then gets channeled into into bona fide investments in real estate or or, or even into industry for that matter. So that there, there are many features of this global economic system which which are gruesome. The the drug trade, the trade in weapons, um, the laundering Uh, process in the the banking havens uh, where, in effect, uh, bona fide businesses meet together also with more shady uh, elements of the corporate system. Um, And then uh, uh, there's the whole process of manipulation where money is made and debts are created through derivative trade through these very highly leveraged uh, operations. And um, we now estimate the, the debt, the derivative debt, to be in the trillions. And uh, ultimately, uh, the people who hold that, that debt uh, have tremendous uh, power, authority over virtually everybody else. Because they, as creditors, they call the shots and they overshadow governments, as in the case of Greece, uh, or they can overshadow also companies uh, or even financial institutions.
0: Have you ever uh, identified who these creditors are?
2: I think that this is the fundamental question. Who are these creditors? Who are the individuals or what are the institutions which actually hold this derivative debt? Uh, And that is is something which is never debated. Uh, When the issue of debt overhang emerges, uh, let's say in the case of Greece, where they say, well, we can't pay the debt, um, there's never any mention as to who the creditors are. And there's no mention of the fact that these creditors must have already placed a fair amount of pressure and conditions on the debtor governments, okay? Um, The creditors are there. They're probably, and most certainly, powerful financial institutions and wealthy individuals. And uh, they are in a position, as far as sovereign debt is concerned, to actually dictate government policy and also to acquire, using these trillions of dollars of debt, they can use this debt to then acquire real wealth, which is the real economy. In other words, to buy up, to buy up uh, industry, um, airlines, um, public lands, uh, and so on, so that the dynamics of this crisis is that ultimately the massive amounts of debt which were created as a result of this crisis and which are held by powerful individuals and powerful financial institutions. Well, what happens is that at one point they will start buying up the real economy as they are already. Okay? They will buy up General Motors, they'll buy up the airlines we will see a very major change in the structure of corporate ownership, where institutional speculators will become increasingly visible in the management of large um, corporations.
0: You say that entire sectors of a national economy are shutting down.
2: Well, entire sectors of a national economy are closing down. Uh, That's also something which has been ongoing. Uh, if we think of um, the delocation, relocation of manufacturing, so that there's a, there's a whole process of, of moving industries to, to these uh, cheap labor havens and closing down entire sectors of the national economy. And I think that that process is ongoing. It's continuing. But at the same time, uh, we see the impoverishment of uh, of large sectors of the population in the Western countries, in the United States, uh, in Canada. The crisis is cumulative. It leads to bankruptcy. What the media is presenting is, in fact, that piecemeal understanding. But rarely will they give us a broader picture of what is occurring. And that is the scary uh, dimension of this process. It's the demise of numerous productive units simultaneously in different parts of the country and, and around the world. And what, what happens when, when these bankruptcies occur? It's a very important mechanism. You have productive facilities, factories, uh, family farms. When there's bankruptcy, it means that the process of production is disengaged. Okay. The resources are there, the the equipment is there, the capital is there, the land is there. But bankruptcy means that no more labor is going to be applied to um, essentially produce commodities which can be sold, so that productive assets remain idle, unused. It's not that they're dysfunctional. They're perfectly good factories and perfectly good equipment, but because Because there's no demand, or because the factory doesn't have access to credit, or because the factory is being displaced by a large corporation, it is obliged to close its doors, and then it becomes a ghost factory. It doesn't exist any—it exists physically still there, but eventually it is removed from the economic landscape. It's a withdrawal from the economic landscape, even though it is physically still uh, in existence in in the geography of that particular town. And eventually, well, perhaps the bulldozers will come and, and drive it out. But the thing is that what is happening there is that perfectly uh, functional industrial assets, farmland, service companies are being driven out of business and the economy is no longer producing. And um, we, we've always been taught that in economics, which in fact is a falsehood, that economics is the science of scarcity. There's no issue of scarcity involved here. The, the capabilities to produce are there, but the mechanism of the economic crisis triggers the demise of those resources, and it means that, that a large percentage of the world population, of the world labor force, is in fact unemployed disengaged from any kind of productive activity. And uh, we come up with a conclusion, it's a very important conclusion, that poverty is not due to a scarcity of means, which is is almost the definition of poverty. People are poor because they don't have the means to produce and they don't have the technology and so on and so forth. That's not the case. Uh, Poverty is due to a process of disengagement from existing resources. The land is there, the factories are there, but they don't produce uh, because people don't have the purchasing power to buy the commodities which these companies produce.
0: Well, you write that poverty is not the result of a lack of resources, but rather of an economic system. That's what we're talking about, right?
2: Poverty is the consequence of, of macroeconomic policy and the dynamics which it actually triggers. And as I said, if you take the issue, let's say, of of food consumption in the world today, uh, there are famines breaking out in different regions of the world. Those famines are not due to a scarcity of food commodities. It's not due to a scarcity of food. Uh, in fact, the estimates suggest that with available land and resources, um, we could feed twice the world population, twice today's world population. But in fact, what is happening is that people don't have the cash flow to buy the food, and consequently, they are then faced with undernourishment or starvation. And there are various mechanisms which emerge. In in developing countries, famines are, in fact, very often triggered as a result of, of macroeconomic reforms, devaluations, for instance. People's wages collapse from one day to the next, and they are no longer able to buy
0: food. Explain how the worldwide scramble to appropriate wealth through financial manipulation is the driving force behind this crisis.
2: If you look at the history of capitalism, going back to the 19th century, uh, what you had in the 19th century were factories, which were privately owned, and profit was uh, essentially extracted from, uh, from the production uh, of commodities, and workers were paid very low wages, okay? That's how they made money. They actually produced in, a, in an assembly line and so on but this is a real economy type of activity now uh, when we we look at financial manipulation we're dealing we're not dealing with the same type of of capitalist uh, entities uh, we're dealing with institutions which first of all do not produce anything they're not necessarily involved in in straightforward uh, uh, transactions, which banks undertake, like lending money to, uh, to households or to small businesses and so on. They make their money out of speculative activities, uh, which yield tremendous earnings, essentially in the uh, trade in derivatives. These um, financial institutions, they have inside information, high-level political connections, foreknowledge of key policy announcements, which are crucial to to undertake these speculative uh, operations. It's a whole area of financial intelligence, the powers of deceit, which uh, enable them to, to bet on the market moving in a particular direction, but at the same time, they have the clout and the influence to make it move in that direction.
0: I'm speaking with economist and author Michel Chosodovsky. Today's show, The Global Economic Crisis, The Great Depression of the 21st Century. I'm Bonnie Faulkner. This is Guns and Butter. Now, you've said that people's savings are being destroyed. This is something you're working on currently. How does that work?
2: Well, first of all, people's savings, were plundered in the financial meltdowns in 2008-2009. People who had some faith in the market, millions of people across America, would put their money in the stock market, or they'd buy mutual funds. And when that stock market collapses, well, they lose their savings. That is one mechanism which certainly has affected a lot of people. But the other aspect of this is that at this moment, uh, interest rates are so low that financial institutions are not even paying interest on people's personal savings accounts. So you can't actually save because the, the interest rate is zero. So you have two choices. Either you leave your money in, in, in liquid form Uh, Or you invest in the stock market, and if you invest in the stock market, you probably lose out when, uh, in an unforeseen moment, the the whole thing melts down, and then you find that your savings have been confiscated by institutional speculators. Uh, But um, to get back to the issue of savings, uh, we are also at the crossroads of a very serious crisis. Uh, as far as fundamental economic um, uh, activities are concerned. And I'm thinking essentially of savings, investment, and credit. Um, The savings function is in crisis because households cannot save. They cannot save. They cannot save up for a rainy day. They cannot save up to buy a house. Why? Because if they put their money in the bank, they get zero interest rate. Uh, If they put their money in the stock market, they lose it. Um, So that essentially savings is dead. Um, I should mention that while people don't get any interest on the money they put in their savings deposit in in their respective financial institution or bank, uh, the banks are charging very high interest rates, particularly on on uh, credit cards, and in fact, it's this um, uh, this um, spread of interest rates which is also a source of of wealth appropriation. We often say, well, interest rates are very low. Uh, interest rates are very low for the banks. The discount rate is is the rate at which the central bank lends to the to the, commercial, uh, to the commercial banks, okay, so that it's the rate at which the Federal Reserve will lend to the, to the various financial institutions. And if that is close to zero, well, then the banks can borrow at, at close to zero. But when the question is, uh, when you actually want to, uh, to um, borrow money from the bank for an investment, uh, this is an entirely different Undertaking, because first of all, um, in recent years and particularly since the meltdown, credit is increasingly difficult to acquire, um, and so it's the freeze of credit as a as an economic instrument which is which is fundamental to keep investment going, because without credit, there can't be any kind of capital formation in an economic system. It's the credit to, to businesses, to small businesses. so that um, and, and usually uh, th- that credit will be at much higher interest rates, of course, than the ones that are applied to the savings accounts. But then there will be even restrictions on, on the availability of credit, irrespective of the interest rate which is charged. And so we're in a situation where banks don't want to lend money and um, the banks are very anxious to have people deposit their money in the form of savings in, their, in a savings account. But they say, well, the interest rate is zero. And then you have businesses, well, they, they can't um, borrow money because the banks don't want to lend them the money because we're in a crisis and, and the only companies that actually are in a position to invest are the large corporations which have their own resources and which are tied into very powerful financial and, and, and economic interests and so on, so that small businesses will not be able to invest because they don't have credit. The credit has is, is been frozen, um, or at least it's been substantially reduced. So certain important functions in a national economy, such as savings, investment, and credit, are being redefined. Uh, people can't save. People can't invest uh, because they can't get credit. And the end result is that the other major activity in an economy, which is consumption, uh, is, is in a free fall. It's in a free fall because um, companies are bankrupt. They're laying off workers. Higher levels of unemployment breeds lower wages and, and, and purchasing power, which in turn leads to a collapse in consumption. So there are certain fundamental um, activities of a national economy. Savings, investment, and consumption are in crisis. And as far as the financial apparatus is concerned, uh, it is much more geared towards the financial manipulation um, and, and making gains in the speculative uh, onslaught than actually uh, developing lines of credit for the real economy, so that credit in that regard is, is also in crisis.
0: Well, you write that this crisis is far more serious than the Great Depression. It sounds like the economy is just shutting down.
2: This crisis is far more serious than the Great Depression, far more serious. Um, I mean, uh, during the Great Depression, there was quite a number of countries that actually were not affected by the Great Depression. Um, the Great Depression was not a global economic crisis. Here we're dealing with a global economic crisis. The The, the markets, uh, the financial markets, are interconnected uh, around the clock. Uh, we have a system of uh, electronic banking uh, we have very powerful financial institutions uh, like J.P. Morgan Chase or Goldman Sachs, which are present everywhere. You know, they they have uh, affiliates in different countries, uh, and and so that that kind of environment is, is very different to what existed in the 1930s, which where where uh, depression or recession was had more of a national dynamics to it. And um, the levels of impoverishment during the Great Depression were very serious in some countries, but they were less serious in others. And uh, what you have today also is the, the globalization of poverty in the developing countries, that this, this absolutely massive um, collapse in living uh, standards, in people's lives, uh, in, in, in the developing world what we call the developing world, which are the poor countries. Uh, and and uh, just to look at these realities boggles the mind. Um, I've been working on, on those countries for a good part of my career. But when I go to Indonesia and I ask them, how much money do you make a month? They said, well, a dollar a day, okay? $30, $40 a month. And then you say, how do they manage to survive? Well, they, they survive under very precarious conditions. The levels of, of undernourishment are very high. They don't have access to services. But that is the reality. In a large uh, number uh, of countries, people are living, uh, living with a few dollars a day and a uh, very meager existence. And uh, the global economic crisis has exacerbated those conditions. Those conditions have existed for quite some time, but they have been exacerbated by the current crisis.
0: I'd like you to talk about the U.S. military now. You write in your new book that the conduct of the Pentagon's long war is intimately related to the restructuring of the global economy. So what is the relationship between war and the global economy presently? Well, first of all,
2: all these military operations, in fact, are very much supportive of economic um, interests. I mean, war is, is essentially uh, a means to serve powerful economic and financial interests. In this particular case, the oil companies, okay? If we're dealing, about, if we're dealing with, the, with the war in Iraq, this is a battle for oil, and, uh, and U.S. foreign policy uh, is um, supporting the Texas oil giants, or, or more broadly, uh, U.S. foreign policy is supporting the Anglo-American, the Anglo-American uh, oil conglomerates, including British Petroleum, which is in essence is an Anglo-American company. Um, so the, this relationship has always existed. All wars, in fact, uh, all wars are implemented to. Uh, to support uh, economic objectives. And there's an economic objective behind these various wars.
0: Well, what are the U.S.'s long-term war plans? For instance, is the United States destabilizing Pakistan? And if so, why?
2: Now, first of all, we have to to look at the geopolitics of this Afghanistan-Pakistan war. it's very much tied into the drug trade. The war in Afghanistan is there to protect the opium trade and the heroin, of course, the heroin which is produced from opium. Uh, we're, dealing with, um, we're dealing with a multi-billion dollar operation. Opium production leads to revenues in Western countries which are in excess of $200 billion a year. That is the cash sales resulting from heroin uh, in, uh, in Western cities and around the world. All those narco-dollars are then deposited in the banking system. Um, we, we have very little information on the, the organizations both the criminal syndicates as well as the business syndicates, which are behind this trade. But certainly it is very substantial. And we also know that this trade has been protected by the CIA in Afghanistan since the late 70s, in fact, since the inception of the, of the narcotics um, triangle in, in Afghanistan, what is called the Golden Crescent.
0: Michelle Chosadovsky, thank you very much.
2: Well it's a pleasure to be uh, to be on guns and butter. Thank you very much.
1: There's something happening Yeah, yeah. What it is exactly clear. There's a man with over there.
0: I've been speaking with Michelle Chosadovsky. Today's show has been The Global Economic Crisis, the Great Depression of the Twenty First Century. Michel Chosodovsky is a professor of economics and director of the Center for Research on Globalization, based in Montreal, Quebec. He is the author of The Globalization of Poverty and the New World Order, War and Globalization, The Truth Behind September 11th, and America's War on Terrorism, as well as numerous articles. He is co-editor and contributor to a new anthology, The Global Economic Crisis, The Great Depression of the 21st Century. Many economists and investigative journalists have contributed to this new volume, including Michelle Chosidowski, Tanya Karina Sue, John Bellamy Foster, Fred Magdoff, James Petras, Claudia von Werlhoff, Seamus Cook, Peter Phillips, Peter Dale Scott, Michael Hudson, Bill Van Auken, Tom Burkhart, Andrew Gavin Marshall, Ellen Brown, Richard C. Cook, and Mike Whitney. Visit the Center for Research on Globalization website at www.globalresearch.ca. That's globalresearch.ca. Guns and Butter is produced by Bonnie Faulkner and Yara Mako. To leave comments or order copies of shows, email us at blfaulkner at yahoo.com. That's B-L-F-A-U-L-K-N-E-R at yahoo.com. Or... 510 848 6767, extension 628.
1: Hey, hey! hey, yo, these are some serious times that we live in, G, and our new world order is about to begin. You know what I'm saying? Now, the question is are you ready for the real revolution, which is the evolution of the mind? If you see out with a spirit sniper, trying to steal your life, you know what I'm saying? Look what decides yourself for peace, give thanks, live life, and release, you dig me?